When we think about the beat poets, those resonant Bay Area icons, we know the famous names, but what about the people just outside the edge of the spotlight? The ones toiling away in coffee houses and bars, dedicating their lives to collective revolution and a belief that art makes the world a better place. There's so many stories that have shaped lives and history, but that can go unwittingly unrecognized by those of us who weren't lucky enough to be there at the time. When one of these stories is lovingly dusted off and carefully carried from the past to the now, it reveals a tiny bit more of our shared history and gifts us with a sense that what unites us is deeper than we even know. Our bodies pass through the space of other people's stories all the time. We asked 10 writers to think of a place within the city of Berkeley where something meaningful or memorable happened to them, and then to write a story inspired by that place. Some are fact, some are fiction, and some live somewhere in between. I'm Joanna Felzer, Artistic Director of Berkeley Rep. This week on Berkeley Rep's Place Settings, we bring you a story of a son loosely connecting the hazy, smoke-filled dots of jazz, a singular mentor, a father's legacy, and the place it all began, Robbie's Coffee House and Diner on Telegraph Avenue. Suicide on Telegraph by Richard Montoya, read by the author. There was a coffee house in the heart of Berkeley, Robbie's Coffee House and Diner on Telegraph Avenue, which sat between two bookstores, one of which might be Moe's, established the very year this story is entered into the books, when jazz was legend and blood rooted deep in the grooves of Lester Young's final record of that same year of 1959. When the collective memory of our Chicano poets became birth and myth and verse got baked into the hard pan of the Ohlone. 1959, Berkeley, late summer, impossible jazz, the year that also saw the passing of Billy and bright stars who fell from the sky, the year I came into the world. A baby bundle delivered by a stoned-out stork swaddled in a coffee-and-jug-wine-stained serape passed about aloft in the cafe to shouts of Salud and Mazel Tov. Clifford Brown dutifully spinning on the joint's hi-fi like scholarship and church. East Bay late morning light cutting dramatic shafts through large windows making filament of tobacco smoke so lovely and kinda safe after all Marlboro and Camel cigarettes posed no harm to infants in 1959. And there was Snooky, a Beacon Hill beauty with a mellow air of brown hair, the art school student from Massachusetts served Berkeley's strongest coffee to a corner table of the cafe where a man known as the Thief held court with five Chicano art students from the nearby California College of Arts and Crafts. The thief, a compact dark man with an intense bearing, ran table for art students, poets, philosophers, and wayfarers at the prized corner table at Robbie's. These vatos were our first wave, our beachhead of romantic intellectuals who descended upon Telegraph Avenue and into the milieu of smoke, jazz, and lethally strong coffee. 
The most happy fellow in the room on this day would be the chappy with the curly hair, light complexion, and Brakeman's rule book tucked in his coat pocket just like Jack. That would be my daddy-o. He brought me to Robbie so his CCAC compadres could anoint the newborn. Me. Eventually, my father, the poet, would truck us back to East 14th Street to our home at the Lockwood Gardens Housing Project near Fruitvale, where my mom awaited with no great concern at all. The real magic of Telegraph were the ancient hotels that dotted the avenue and the few that still stand today. Robbie's was connected to the lobby of one such grand lady who had seen better days, a five-story walk-up called the Palazzo. Such hotels were vessels, large ships, carriers, holders of lives, of loves, and all their fragments, thousands of crisscrossing currents ricocheting over the millennium of telegraph. Enter the great professor of the art college, a one Miss Carol Purdy. In her late 70s in 1959, now I'm obliged to age her, alas, if only to make the case that Miss Purdy was born in the late 1800s, which makes her daddy, Mr. Purdy, a contemporary of John Muir and Joaquin Cincinnatus Miller, the Bard of Oakland, who I always assumed was Jack London or MC Hammer. Ms. Purdy, impeccable in attire, dark glasses and an eagle's eye for talent, grooming the five Chicanos from CCAC, taking them under her eagle wing and imbuing them with an intellectual zeal, razor sharpened with daily high-wire verbal exercises without a net. These were the Purdy boys. And the thief, let's call him Ralph, a few years older than my dad and the rest, was a participant in the first pilot prison to college program. A traveler who would sojourn to revolutionary Cuba by year's end. Ralph carried with him twin pocketbooks of the Communist Manifesto and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, interlocking texts of the century, both published in 1848, 32 years before the birth of Carol Purdy. The Vatos y la Gringa, the Maverick, sitting there at the corner table inside Robbie's in the womb of the Palazzo that Indian summer of 59, before Buddy Holly died with a Chicano kid from Pacoima, and Mexico City blues hit the streets like the Talmud of Telegraph. The beats were landing on North Beach. Tectonic plates were shifting like the San Andreas Fault, and Ginsburg would one day be lecturing with cheeseburgers in a Cal cafeteria, and Miss Purdy kept sowing seeds of art and resistance in the fertile minds of the young Chicanos whose own journeys saw their generation toil in the shameful harvest and the hostile shadows of the Valley of the San Joaquin. And that valley to the east... Her big gray sky sucking in poets like Tule fog to late morning sun, verses undulating in the August heat flames bouncing off Highway 99, prose, poetry, and promise merging and melting into the other, causing sweet confusion as to what poet from what generation wrote what down. Poems I thought were writ by Muir and Miller may have been writ by a pretty boy from Telegraph. Poems we thought to be writ by the Chicano and Chicano poets of California could have been authored by a New Englander. Exhibit A. Looking eastward from the summit of Pacheco Pass one shining morning, a landscape was displayed that after all my wonderings still appears as the most beautiful 
I have ever beheld. At my feet lay the great central valley of California, level and flowery like a lake of pure sunshine, 40 or 50 miles wide, 500 miles long, one rich furred garden of yellow. And from the eastern boundary of this vast golden flower bed rose the mighty Sierra. This intolerable beauty, writ by John Muir. Make no mistake, the Chicanos didn't simply fashion themselves after the poets of the East. The New Englanders also borrowed and marveled at the dark side of the table. How else do we explain this haunting poem attributed to Joaquin Miller, who Ambrose Bierce named the Lyre of the West, erstwhile Oakland's resident poet of the Sierras? A washo brave returning from the hunt befell a strange and frightful scene in the snow high above the frozen lake so awesome he cried like nothing had moved him thus before they sent men to match mountains this intolerable beauty penned by jose montoya with echoes of the beats and the gray beards what other poems, art, and songs were sculpted on the coffee tables on Telegraph, argued about for hours at the Blind Lemon, and later spilt into the culture? Mother loads buried deep in the Emeryville mudflats, driftwood sculptures created by a CCAC professor and the class of 59 with the Pretty Boys, Burning Man standing on the shoulders of those early creations moored in Ohlone mud. Back to Telegraph Avenue and the mysterious rooms to let above the cafes and storefronts. Room 517 at the Palazzo. It held a particular and magical incandescence. A large room at the end of a long hall with huge windows facing west towards the gates of Marin. Late afternoon sun flooding in, chasing away all melancholy, it was said. Ralph the Thief. He let the room the entire year of 59. The rest of the years the space belonged to the eternities and those who moved through it like shadow cloud specters needing cheap room and board. More mattresses made their way up and down five flights of stairs to 517 than any other flop house in busy berserk. An upright piano leaned against a wall in 517, its origins a mystery. Always out of tune, that piano lent an air of sorrow at times that held the room together along with years of unprotected sex. Berkeley Noir. Moe's Books. Neon signs flickering. Telegraph poles on telegraph, always visible on the fifth floor, along with the fire escape, which held more tears, more jazz, more reefer, more souls, into the wee hours of many a morn. 517 had a New York feel. Much of Berkeley always did, her speed, her density, and her charming neurosis and academic zenith drawing leading Jewish-American scholars west, and with them, the highest per capita of citizens committed to psychoanalysis and theater. hey Ever stand on a line Sunday mornings at Saul's? You want a table? It helps to be loud and Jewish, or a pushy, righteous Chicano. A New York Minuteman. Fractures of time, fractures of song, fractures of lives littered on telegraph-like pamphlets for events that happened way before.
There was a man named Saru from the land of Wilsaroyan. He tried to stop his fair love from jumping out a high window. Cops blocked the avenue from Bancroft to Durant. Cause there's been a suicide up on television. Up on television. It ain't gonna work on Alice Waters' phone no more. And Bobby Seal, he said to me, You got a lot of Can I smoke a cigarette in front of this infant child? Other mischief occurred in room 517 above the cafe, and in no particular order. Ulysses was read in one sitting in the presence of a corpse by theology students. Pablo Neruda slept here once. A Chilean student group rebuilt an entire engine of a 1969 Volvo station wagon in room 517 with Palestinian underclassmen. The engine ran on garlicky hummus and made it safely out of the fire escape with a pulley system, but eventually fell, killing a mime on the street in what is known today as the Silent Massacre of Telegraph. Ralph and the Pretty Boys hatched a plan to prevent ROTC recruitment offices from taking root on the campus of Cal. A true story. More fractures of time. Joe Strummer was here. If only for a summer shag. The clash rocked the Greek. And one day Johnny Rotten bummed a fag. And then the punks were pushed out of the hotels and onto the curbs of Telegraph. Back to the night of the wake from Miss Purdy in room 517. Union men, art students, and revolutionaries wept. Professor Emeritus Carol Purdy Mentor of the pretty boys. Bells from the Campanelli toll. Distant sound of infant cries. Southern Pacific rails of West Berkeley scream. Miss Pretty knew this place could crush souls. Not everybody makes it in Berkeley. There was joy and there was madness. And there was and is suicide in the hushed halls of Academe and on the avenue where spirit and bone can be crushed. From that she plucked them from the periphery and placed the pretty boys at the center table, not to study and simply marvel up at the gray-bearded poets of New England, but to join them at her concentric cosmic table. She armed them for hard times to come refining their signifiers, sharpening their language, and not permitting the deathly earnest discussions of existentialism to rob their essential Chicano humor. And so, Los Vatos, they made East Bay song and poetry that would join the anthologies de Los Grandes, Ginsberg, Iferlingeri, Roberto Vargas, Ishmael Reed, Nina Serrano, Ilajanis, Miracatani, say the poets' names, write the poem. Destroy the poem, she extolled. Los Chicanos de Berkeley, our first beachhead, wearing shine shoes from their Navy and Army bids. Esteban Villa, Richard Rios, 
Salvador Queso Torres, Kernan Paul Sandoval, Jose Montoya, and the thief, genius second story man Ralph Ornelas, and their comrades in arms, Roy Scott, later Malakias Montoya, Rene Yanez with their GI Bills. One day, all of them would give poetic definition and artistic articulation to an entire Chicano movement. What Miss Purdy did? What my responsibility to the legacy of it, the infant held aloft in the joy of 59? Can a poem be haunted? The child later in me wondered. When I was drunken by their words, pushed down by the burden of the load and the shadow of their poetic majesty. The Sierras, my God, the mother of the valley, the blurring of the text of the Chicanos and New Englanders made equal at the table of Miss Purdy. That is what she did. So quintessentially California. I won't be surprised if California saves America. I won't be surprised if Berkeley saves the world. Or at least a Sunday drive on Joaquin Miller Road will. Or the train yards to remind us it's still a train town. Brakeman's rule book in my pocket like Dad, like Jack. What the hell is the point of all this? The nostalgia, romance, or the sheer beauty of the poetry itself? Perhaps it's time for you to hear the poet who emerged from the milieu of the madness of telegraph, who strode the foothills of the Sierras, who painted the Cascades, who adored Mount Diablo. The true author of They Sent Men to Match Mountains, the pretty boy who brushed up against the beats, who matched the stately beauty of Muir, of Miller, of Steinbeck, and Soroyan. Jose Montoya, original Bauhaus about the loco of telegraph, with a loving remembrance for Sister Diane de Prima. Presente. Layover in Mazatlán, one year to the day. In slow motion, at times suspended in the heavy heat, the seagulls soar, cocky and indifferent, high above the terminal. And in that blinding suffocation, I suffer in the memories of a sun-selling postcard you sent me a year ago to the day, saying how you missed me and how you loved me. And today I write a poem waiting for Transportes Norte de Sonora to take me back to that engaño that dissolved our magic forever. Y sigo viajando en camiones de segunda that carry me closer to that other heat sin aire acondicionado. My thoughts wrapped with ribbons del color de la traición. This story was written and read by Richard Montoya, a co-founder and principal writer for Culture Clash, a leading Chicano Latinx performance troupe established in the Bay Area in 1984. 
He's a filmmaker, independent playwright, and proud papa bear of two Chicano Cal Cubs. Special thanks to Gilbert Castellanos for letting us feature three pieces of his amazing music, Ballad for Jewels, Mamacita, and Para Mi Madre. Gilbert is a Mexican-American composer, arranger, trumpeter, band leader, and man of many talents based in San Diego. You can find out more about him on his Facebook page. Thanks also to Omar Sosa, a Cuban jazz pianist who works all over the world, along with having an extended presence on the San Francisco Bay Area Latin jazz scene. You can find his beautiful piece, Para Ella, featured in this story on his 1998 album, Inside. Berkeley Rep thanks our Rep on Air sponsor, the Bernard Osher Foundation, and our place-setting sponsor, Berkeleyside. And we're so grateful to our Berkeley Rep season sponsors, Bruce Golden and Michelle Mercer, Francis Hellman and Warren Breslau, Jack and Betty Schaefer, the Strout Kulhangian family, Bart, and Pete's Coffee for their generous support. This series is produced by Berkeley Repertory Theater. Sound designed by Lane Elms and Madeline Oldham. Our theme music is by Buen Aurelio Malazar. You can find him on Bandcamp. Join us next week for a story by Sarah Rule. <laughs>